Hello, everybody. Good afternoon. My name's Kath Keneally, and I'm here to chair a session that we're calling Charismatic Crime Fighters with two creators of SAME, Chris Hammer and Emma Viskic. Before we start, I would like to acknowledge the Ghana people as the traditional custodians of the Adelaide Plains and pay respects to elders past, present and future. For your information, we'd like you to turn your phones to silent. The hashtag is hashtag capital ADL, capital WW. We ask you to support the writers uh, in Adelaide Writers Week by purchasing books in the book tent and indeed these writers will be heading across to the book tent afterwards to sign copies of their books. And these are their books right in front of me. Be COVID safe and follow the messaging on the screens and in the garden. So, lovely to see you all here. Perfect afternoon on the last day. And I am thrilled to be meeting Emma and Chris. Very thrilled because I'm a, a crime writing devotee. I was going to be talking to Gail Jones in case any of you were expecting Gail still, but Gail had to pull out sadly earlier on. However, this was no hardship for me and these guys stepped in at short notice and they were free to do so, which is our very good fortune. So Chris and Emma have both created very charismatic crime fighters. That's largely what we'll be talking about, although I suspect that an hour will not be long enough, really. I've got an awful lot of questions. One thing I am pleased about is that as writers who had other careers to start with, they both hit the ground running and they have churned out three books each in quick succession. Uh, I don't know how you do it, but I'm very grateful because, as I was saying to Emma a little bit earlier, as someone who follows particular writers of series, you wait all year or two years for the next one, it comes to the library or your bookshop and you devour it overnight or in two days and you think, oh, this isn't very fair because now I'm just wishing them to get on with the next one. So Chris, as you may know, uh, has been a journalist for many, many years, particularly working for SBS and often overseas. And Emma is a classical clarinetist by training. So it sounds lovely that you might have invented a crime-fighting clarinetist. Um, but music, in fact, features very little in the three Caleb Zelich books. In fact, there is an auditory deficit uh, key to the series because Caleb is deaf. Martin Skarsden, uh, like his creator Chris, is a veteran journalist and his forays into criminal investigations seem not unnatural. But with those backgrounds, why precisely did both of you decide to turn to crime? Emma? <laughs> I, I think it's, it's multifaceted. Um, I, I wrote a couple of manuscripts before I wrote my first novel, Resurrection Bay, uh, and I really enjoyed the process. And I'd, I'd always written as a kid, but like this was, I'm going to write a book. Um, and they were terrible. They were just so boring. There were people sitting around in cafes talking about their feelings a lot, you know. Um, and the elements that worked were the crime elements, because that's when you really started understanding who the characters were and why they wanted things and why um, why they wouldn't do things as well, what was holding them back. Um, and I've always read crime. I've, I, I read everything except for horror because I'm really scared. Um, 
And so crime just felt like a great way of exploring people and society. And, and, and that's what I'm really interested in. I'm, I'm interested in people. Um, I started writing uh, fiction and crime pretty much, I think, for therapy. <laughs> I'd gone, I'd, I'd, had a, I'd written a couple of non-fiction books that were um, very well received, but really sold next to nothing. And I was forced to go back, back to working as a journalist. Uh, but in my new iteration back in the press gallery in Canberra, um, I wasn't doing a lot of writing. I was actually running a little video production unit um, from my background as a television journalist. Um, and I missed writing. So I really started writing as a hobby. Um, why crime? Um, like Emma, I tried to write something more worthy back in my 20s. Absolute, you know, disaster. Um, and the idea of crime appealed to me because I figured if I had the structure of the plot, then everything else maybe would fall into place. That and, and I always quite like reading crime books. Yeah. Yes, yeah, something more worthy. I mean, I take issue with that in a way because a good crime novel can be where you find out an awful lot about the world and people in, in a way that you don't in other sorts of fiction. That's absolutely true. I mean, the more crime you read, you notice they're often... It, I think it is a, in an effort to, to add verisimilitude and authenticity. They often touch on events of the day mm. um, in a That's way right. that maybe a lot of um, so-called literary fiction doesn't. Mm. It may be a more, they may be more personal type of stories, but crime writing often does touch on, you know, whatever the big issues of the day are. So, in a sense, they can be very relevant. Mm. So, we're talking in particular about your central characters, these charismatic crime fighters, and I noticed that Anne Cleves, who created Vera Stanhope and the Shetland series, says of Scrublands your first book, that it's an almost perfect crime novel with an intelligent, thought-provoking, great narrative energy, a central character who's imperfect but self-aware, and of course that amazing setting. Well, exactly, and the same could be said of uh, Emma's books, I think, and we could do worse than unpick that statement, but why does the central character need to be imperfect for the novel to work? And I, it's not always true. Somebody like Barry Maitland, for instance, had a very good guy cop at the centre of the Brock and Collar uh, mm. series, although his sidekick was had feet of clay. But um, and and I wonder whether Martin is all that imperfect. I, I'd like you to both think about that for a minute. Yeah. Um, I was actually lucky enough to do an event like this with Anne Cleves in the UK, where oh, she and right. I shared a stage. And I was, you know, I was a bit awestruck, as you might imagine. But I remember she said this thing. She said, everyone who considers crime fiction thinks about the plot. You know, how do you come up with these plots? And she made the point that she thinks that plot, in many ways, is secondary, that the characters become come first, the characters and the setting. And if you think of her two great series, Shetland, you know, the setting is so evocative. Mm. And Vera Stanhope, well, you know, what a character. Mm. And 
Uh, and I went away and I, I, I thought about that, and I thought she's right. And, and the one I thought about was, um, which I'd read years and years ago, the Stig Larsson book, you know, Girl with a, with a Dragon Tattoo. Mm. Now, I know a lot of people that have read it, right? Who can remember the plot? Yeah. Oh, I've got this kind of hazy idea. <laughs> Who can remember the character? Who can remember Elizabeth Solander, mm. right? Everyone remembers it. So I reckon Anne Cleves is absolutely right. Character trumps plot in crime books. Yeah, yeah I, I think they're absolutely interconnected. Um, so I think for me as a reader as well as a, a writer, the plot is the car. That's getting me somewhere. That's getting the reader somewhere. Um, you've got the scenery, absolutely. It's the people in the car that I'm interested in. You know, if I'm just going somewhere and I'm getting out of the car, um, who cares? Um, but maybe you've had an accident on the way. Maybe you go down a dead end and it's misty and, you know, who's that strange man in the you know, distance? So it, it's, the, the plot is absolutely part of the character and, and the best plots, I think, um, come because they are absolutely interconnected and it's about the character's choices actually drive the plot. So you might have an inciting incident where something, oh, there's a dead body, look at this, the Adelaide Writers Week, you know, there's a dead body, who did it? Um, so the first thing might be totally unrelated, but it's what do you do next? What does the protagonist do next? Mm -hmm. uh, I'll give you a little bit of background on Emma's fictional character, Caleb Zelich, and her books have all done tremendously well. She was picked up by Echo Publishing, mm -hmm. and that first book won more awards than you could shake a stick at. Uh, Sisters in Crime love you very much. They keep giving you David awards. But to be able to write Caleb, she learnt Auslan, uh, Australian Sign Language. Caleb is the mainstay of Trust Works. They investigate fraud and uh, look after corporate security and that kind of thing. His partner is a total loose cannon. She's Frankie Reynolds. She's an ex-cop. She has lots of problems. She's a recovering, maybe, junkie, alcoholic. Uh, and alongside her, Caleb seems a model of well-balanced <laughs> adjustment to life, and they both leap off the page and keep on doing so. So I wonder if you could speculate about, and I'm, you probably have thought about this, and in fact, it's probably why you chose to give him this characteristic. What does his impairment give him that other people don't have? That is actually something I didn't know when I first started writing Caleb's character, I didn't know what advantages him being deaf would be. Um, and that was a really interesting journey for me as, as a person and a writer. Um, when I first had the idea that he was going to be deaf, and that was a very long process, um, I actually thought, that's a great idea, it's fantastic hook, and I'm definitely not going to do that. <laughs> Um, for, for a number of reasons, yeah. I, th I thought technically it would be too hard. Mm. Um, and my way into writing is, it's, I almost write scripts. It's yeah. dialogue. I'm very oral, so uh, it's, it's very dialogue-based. Right. Um, and then the, you, you have also the, the problems of writing outside your own lived experiences and, and what that means. Um, so I put the manuscript away for like six months. And I just couldn't get, couldn't get it out of my brain, couldn't get him out of my brain, so I did it. The more research I did and the more people in the deaf and hard of hearing communities I spoke to and, and in learning Auslan and everything, um, and the more I got into Caleb's brain, the more I realised that, yes, it would actually make my life and his life harder, 
it would give us both enormous benefits as well. So um, he is, Caleb is extremely visually observant. I am not. I, like, if, if I close my eyes and you said, you know, what am I wearing? I would have no idea whatsoever. So it's, had, it's made me a lot more uh, clued into things and it's, it's made me um, work really hard on that in my writing as well, descriptions in place and, and setting things like that. Mm. Um, it's made him a very, very astute people watcher, which is obviously a great thing for uh, a detective to be. Uh, mm. But yeah, he, he can't hear people sneaking up on him. He, um, he can't lip read like we can uh, hear if you're a hearing person. Mm. You, you, it's not the same that you are going to miss information. So it's got that push-pull, which, which is what I like in fiction. Yeah, uh, that's what I thought. That, that's why it made the book so intense, because the fact that he notices everything so precisely mm. and, and everything, his being able to communicate with people depends on him doing that. Mm. So it means you, as a writer, have to really examine what's going on through his brain and it comes through in the vividness of the writing. But for all that, he's his own worst enemy, isn't he? Especially in the first two books, he's trying to fix himself up in the last one on that score. But why is that? I think it comes back to your, your question about flawed characters. And I think human beings are innately flawed. And imagine if you did have a perfect character or a perfect person, um, actually pretty boring. So it's, it's the playoff against the, um, I want to be this person and yet I'm this person. And it's that tension that makes you keep turning the pages. If um, I mean, that old children's book, Pollyanna, quite obnoxious, really, you know? She's just so perfect in every way. She's just so... And you think, well, that's really sweet. Maybe that can um, carry a children's book for a short amount of time, but I, I, I want the dark and the light. I want the, the humour and the darkness. And so Caleb is, as you say, his own worst enemy in, in many, many ways. In, and in particular because he won't admit his impairment. He keeps trying, as his partner keeps saying to him, you keep trying to pass. Yes, yes. Yeah, and, and, and I think that, for me, was uh, a really interesting... Um, a, a really interesting thing to examine. Um, we all have our things that we, we try and pass at, you know, some of us more than others. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and what are you hiding from the world and, and what are the barriers that you've put up in order to pass uh, as normal in whatever area? of your life you're trying to do. And I think for Caleb, it's, it's, it's a very obvious one because um, he cannot hear. And so it's quite clear to the reader. But you can see that through your own lens. Is it pretending you're confident? Is it pretending that you're a party person? You know, is it pretending that you're a, a good mother, whereas really you're just going, oh, God, I don't know what to do? Uh, so I think it's a really universal mm. experience. So, Chris, if we come back to Martin Scarston, the more I think about Martin, the more I think, is he you? I mean... <laughs> There are a lot of things that you share when we meet him in Scrublands. What, what, what's he been doing? What's he up to? He's, um, I mean, clearly because he's a journalist, many of, many of the sort of methodologies, if you like, of journalism are based on my own experiences. Um, and indeed, the, in Scrublands, the, the, the seed of the idea, I think, was a journalist going to a town a year after something terrible has happened. Um, and I'd done stories like that, some 
I mean, I went, I went, remember going to Arche a year after the tsunami, but prob probably a more relevant ex example is I went, not a year later, but I, I think it was like three months, six months, to a little town in East Texas called Jasper, um, where an African-American man, James Byrd Jr., had been killed by white supremacists who tied him to the back of a pickup truck and dragged him to death. Now, and I spent a week or more in that town with, with a camera crew shooting a, shooting a story, which was all about the town. It wasn't about the murder. There was no mystery about the murder. They caught the perpetrators. Um, but that story was very much about race. It was a racially segregated town. Um, so there's none of that in Scrublands, of course. It's just that idea of him in going there. Yet, you know, he's not me because, well, I hope he's not me, because uh, he's a kind of an emotional cripple, right? He, he, he's about 40. He hasn't had a, um, a reasonable kind of adult relationship ever. He just flies off to places and, you know, has one-night stands and whatever, and it's only in Scrublands that he undertakes... He starts his emotional journey, uh, which kind of surprised me, because that's what wasn't what I was setting out to do when I started writing the book. I was just trying to write a book. I, you know, he, just, he just grew and developed, and by the end of the book, as well as all the crime threads and all the rest, you have this emotional journey that he's undertaking. He's, bec he's becoming more self-aware. So it was only really at the end of the book that I went, oh, I really liked that bit of it. And I think it resonated with some readers. And so the, the next book, Silver, is really him going back to his old hometown and you know discovering or confronting or reconciling, coming to terms with the trauma of his childhood. Now, none of that is me. <laughs> you know, I had a completely happy, normal, suburban upbringing. So the journalist part is me, but the other part is just, it's not based on anyone I know or any deep research or anything like that. It's just the way he's grown, you know, over the last two or three years. And in Scrublands, I love the names of your characters. <laughs> Mandalay Blonde, you hard to beat. That's pretty good. People call her Mandy. <laughs> her mother liked the sound of Mandalay, so she's Mandalay. Some other great names. Byron Swift is good. Um, yeah, and a few others that... Um, I, I'm thinking through the development of Martin through the three books, which I've just read all in a row, or reread Scrublands and Silver, actually, and, yeah. and um, Trust for the first time. But uh, in those first two books, setting is very much as important as what's going on for the characters, or it's, it governs it to a large extent. In this book, Trust, which perhaps we could talk about now, you branch out, and I don't know why you did, uh, maybe for, um, you know, writerly reasons, maybe because you thought, oh, this is fair. You've given half of the book to Mandy. You've given uh, us each al alternate chapter in her voice. Yeah, so the first two books are told very much from Martin's point of view. He's in... It's not first person, but it's <clears throat> it's very close to... Um, in that he's in every scene and you can read what he's thinking, but you really only have his interpretations of other pe people. 
So, but just as the second book, Silver, is about his past and what's happened to him in the past, um, trust is really about things that have happened in Mandy's past, not in, not in her childhood, but in her early 20s. And there's just no way that Martin would be able to tell those stories because one, he's not, he, he's, he's a bit kind of emotionally retarded and however observant he might be about, you know, clues on crimes and whatever, he's not very receptive when it comes to, you know, personal relationships. So I'm thinking there's no way he can tell this story. So I, so I toyed for a while of thinking that I'd tell it purely from her point of view. Um, but I, I wasn't sure that would work either. And also I wanted to, tr to try something different, like a different, a bit of a challenge, if you like. You want to keep growing as a writer. So there was that sort of stylistic thing. And how it ends up in trust is it's actually alternating chapters. It's one from Martin's point of view, then one from Mandy. Sometimes they're together, so they're noticing things about the other. And then oftentimes they're apart. And um, the effect is, it makes the book more pacey, I think, than the previous two, because it's basically one scene, one chapter. So the chapters are shorter and you're bouncing more. So, so it becomes a, a pacier book. But again, when, when I'm writing, I'm not really, I don't have the plot really plotted out. I've got a few ideas. There's different threads. There's often two or three different crime threads. But I had, again, this idea that, that the emotional journey was important. And in this case, though, it was Mandy's emotional journey. And mm. I had a, a vague sort of idea where it was going to end up. I just didn't know how she was going to get there. So that was, that was the process involved there. So she's grown enormously from the, from the seed of an idea, which I had with Scrublands, was just this idea you know, I had, I had a, a, the idea for her and the priest. I thought people will make preconceptions about who they are and what the tropes are, and then I can sort of subvert them and turn them on their head. She just started as that sort of idea, but, you know, three or four years later, she's grown into a much more complex and rounded character. Mm. And the other thing, of course, with trust is that you move us away from those um, country or regional locations or coastal to the big smoke. and. I'm thinking at a certain point in Silver, you have Martin with his teeth into a story thinking, this is great, I can write whatever I like, assert whatever I like, because the dead can't sue. And I wondered if you, as a journalist, if you, if you were, had always wanted to do a kind of corrupt, you know, top end of big city expose uh, and really go for it without having to watch your back. Um, well, I did do some stories about high-end corruption um, in France and Germany, um, including with uh, Chirac. And also, also I did a story in Russia about this guy who I'd never heard of who uh, they thought might try and steal the next election, a guy called Vladimir Putin. <laughs> so, and that was exploring, you know, the manipulation of the state media, etc. Yeah, there's probably a bit of wish fulfilment though, for sure, because <clears throat> without giving too much away in trust, he absolutely goes for it in a way that really, you know, no, no major media publication in, in Australia ever could. Um, as an example, 
the events of the last couple of weeks with Christian Porter, everyone in Canberra, everyone in the media, probably everyone in legal circles who knew it was, why wasn't it published? Because the guy's a really good lawyer. You get your ass sued off. So until he outed himself, people were too scared, right? Mm. So in a sense, in the books, there is a bit of wish, wish fulfilment in it. You know, it's kind of, you know, damn the torpedoes, you know, publish and be damned. And, and at, in Australia, you would be damned. And as a reader, you really relish that. Mm. That's yeah. great. Mm. <laughs> Only the names are changed. <laughs> oh, no, I careful. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the things that intrigues me about the characters that you've chosen to create is that they're both lone operators, and you could have made them police people or other people with some kind of... Um, authority behind them and they're, they're also in each case they're unwilling crime fighters they're persuaded against their better judgment to go in deep and go in hard when they find themselves for various reasons on the periphery of these dark and, and troubling matters so you know I often think as a reader of crime fiction well what makes them decide and how do you keep us convinced that Yes, that is what they would have done. They wouldn't just have gone home and pulled the covers over their heads and said, well, no. <laughs> uh, Emma. Caleb, particularly, actually, thinking about it. Yeah, I mean, I, um, I often just write to begin with and, and then understand why afterwards. But the one thing that I was very clear on was that I didn't want a, a police detective investigating um, because the procedural stuff is, uh, to me, the least interesting thing in a novel. I don't actually care about the whodunit that much. I mean, it has to be a really satisfying whodunit when it's revealed. Um, it's the rest of the book that's getting you there that really interests me as, as a reader and a writer. Um, so for, for me, that means the, uh, the protagonist has to be emotionally engaged with the crime. So with Resurrection Bay, I actually started it... Um, with the, the very first chapter, um, which was a man sitting in a suburban kitchen with his best mate dead in his arms. And I didn't know who he was, and I didn't know if he'd even killed this person. I didn't know what had happened. I knew it was a, quite a gruesome crime. Um, and so I really wanted to know what happened next. And then I, I got to know the characters that way. And, and if you've got someone whose best mate has been murdered and he's a detective, uh, you know, he happens to be a fraud investigator, but he knows how to, how to interview people. He's absolutely going to be driven um, to investigate this crime. Whereas if it had been Detective Senior Sergeant Joe Bloggs, well, that's his job. And that's not to say that police procedures can't be brilliant, because they can be fantastic. You know, you look at um, uh, Peter Temple's uh, trust, and, um, oh, sorry, truth, <laughs> truth and trust. Um, and you've got Villani investigating something, it's fantastic, but it's actually not so much about the crimes, it's about the city and the people and the detective. So that one was really obvious for me. That, that one more obvious, and then as the books go along and he's trying to be a good boy for his partner, Kat, who's, you know, has various reasons for wanting him to stay alive, uh, he's especially by the third book, he's vowed to start making sensible choices. Yes, well, so for the, for the second book, for Caleb, um, there needed to be a, a strong emotional reason for him to investigate a crime, because yeah. he's not strong. directly um, 
associated with a crime, a woman approaches him at night, signs to him badly in Auslan, um, and, and things go worse from there. It was all about um, response to trauma. And Fire Came Down is very much a response to Resurrection Bay, which is the first book. So it, 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 it all ties in with his mindset and it becomes very personally linked mm. uh, as well um, as the book goes on. He doesn't realise that at first. With Darkness for Light, which, as you say, is the third one, he is, um, yeah, he's, he's got a new motto, you know, make good decisions, make good choices, and he's trying very hard. So, of course, I needed a very good personal reason for him yeah. to get involved, and he's got a couple there, you which did. I won't... Because as a reader spoiled. who just read the first two, I'm thinking, no, don't. <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> You've got you to give them what they want and then pull the rug out from under them. <laughs> and... Um, would you say the same for Martin, that there have to be strong emotional reasons for him to pursue the things, or is just his journalistic passion enough to get him going in after the, the story? So, um, it is interesting with me, you know, being a former journalist, mm. having a journalist as a protagonist, and it's a, it's a, it seems to me like a, a natural thing to do. Mm. Except there are so many really good crime writers who used to be journalists. I mean, think of you know, Jane Harper, she was a journalist. Michael Robotham was a journalist. Peter Temple was a journalist. Val McDermott was a journalist. Michael Connolly was a journalist. And none of them have journalists as their protagonists. No. Um, uh, uh, Michael Connolly has, has, does have a couple of books with a journalist as a protagonist, but a journalist has a licence to stick your nose in mm. to places where it, you know, it's not wanted. You can, if you ring someone up and say, you know, I'm Chris Hammer, citizen, can you tell me about this? <laughs> You're just going to go, what, who are you? Sort off. If I ring up and say, I'm Chris Hammer from the Bulletin magazine or the Sydney Morning Herald or something, you'll, you may not want to talk to me, but you won't question my licence to do so. So with Martin, in Scrublands, it's very much... He wants to write a newspaper story. He wants to resurrect his journalism degree. And, and as the book goes along, he, the story changes. But that is his motivation. But I wanted to mix that up more. So mm. in Silver, he's got... His motivations start becoming more complex. And it gets to a point... His initial motivation in Silver is that Mandy is the chief suspect in a murder. She's been found next to a dead guy with blood on her hands, right? So he starts off, his motivation is simply to clear her name. But somewhere along the line, she realises that there is a cracking newspaper story here. And so that fires up his journalistic instincts. And then there's a bit of tension there about what his motivations are. Um, by the time we get to trust, his motivations, in the end, Yes, the journalism takes over, but there's a whole lot of emotional reasons for him to be involved in, in what he's doing. Mm. Um, and you notice with a lot of crime writers who, who write really good um, kind of police procedurals, they often imbue their uh, protagonists with almost like a mission. It's not just a job mm. for them. They, they have a, a need to yeah. deliver justice or, you know, because of what's happened to them. So I think the days are the kind of the, the, just the amateur detective who's doing it for fun. Mm. I, I, don't, I don't think re 
readers are that interested in it. And mm. I know as a kind of a writer, you just want to explore more complex things. Mm. Yeah, and speaking of more complex, in the cases of both these charismatic crime fighters, their backstory and their family history is really well done and very fascinating for the reader and critical to fleshing them out. Um, so I wondered if you could both give us a, a sort of fingernail sketch of the salient features of Caleb's and Martin's fictional birth families and their traumas. Anton, for instance, is an absolutely wonderful creation. You could talk about him, and so is Vern, who I would love. Could, could you take it from there? Mm. Uh, so I, I wanted an isolated person, um, and and that Caleb could have come from a big, happy loving family, but it's going to make my job a lot easier <laughs> as a writer if he didn't. Um, and the novels are, are, at their core are about family and outsiders. They are. Um, and identity, how, how you identify in, in different areas of your life. Um, so I knew that um, Caleb it would work best if he came from a small family. I uh, conveniently killed off his parents, like as a, you know, an older, not, not as a child. So then we're left with just Caleb and his brother Anton, who, who is a recovering addict. Um, and I, I really wanted to play off the, the strengths and weaknesses with that. And, and also that they're estranged, but they obviously love each other. And how can we you know, bring that together? And we see Anton a little bit in, in the first novel. Um, and actually, the, I've just handed in the, the manuscript of the fourth. and. I can say that there will be a little bit of Anton in that one, quite a lot of Anton in that one. Um, so it, it's very much about what the strengths and weaknesses are, and, and Caleb is, is very uh, rigid to begin he, with in the a, stories about what is right and wrong and that is weak to be an addict or he, to want to drink. He's a lot like his dad. He's very like his dad. So it all, it's, I mean, um, I think his... his his core driving thing is that he's incredibly proud, he's incredibly independent, and he, he wants to be respected as a person, and that is all coming from his relationship with his very stern, uh, controlling father. Who never gave him an inch and no. never conceded to his deafness at all. So. No, no, it's, it was trying to make him a hearing person rather than accept him as a, a deaf child. And, and like his, so his father's you know, favourite say, saying is, if your best isn't good enough, try harder. And um, Caleb has very much taken this on. So one of the interesting things for me as a writer was then getting Caleb to slowly change over the books and to come around to thinking, actually, this rigidity is not necessarily a strength at yeah, all. Yeah. Um, but that exploring their, their family backgrounds is, is something that I really enjoy as a oh, writer. Terrifically well done. I love it. And how about um, Martin's fictional birth family? So in... Um in Scrublands, I mean, sometimes I think readers have an idea that the authors just have all this mapped out, that mm. when I was writing Scrublands, I knew all about yeah. silver and trust. I mean, I wish I did, because I could have mm, like yeah. slipped a and few Easter eggs, you know, seriously. a bit of foreshadowing and whatever. Yeah. But I had this idea of Martin being rather damaged. And so that's explained in Scrublands about this traumatic event that's befallen him as a reporter in the Gaza Strip. And he's got post-traumatic stress. But by the end of the book, I'm thinking, no, look, there's more to it than that. Mm. And as I said, I'd start, you know, this emotional journey sort of part had started up. So I thought there's more to it than that. And so Silver is really about him going back to his old hometown. 
In Scrublands, he's a total outsider. He doesn't know anyone. In Silver, he still has relatives there. He has family there. He's got cousins that he didn't even know he existed. Um, and he has to confront what happened to him as a child in that his mother and, and, um, and sisters died. And then sometime, and he's left, left living with his father, who was a complete wreck, um, and then died sometime later. And he has this idea of what might have happened, and then that changes over the over the course of the book. And by, and by the by the end of it, he he learns what actually did happen, which is different than what he thought. And by doing that, he comes comes to terms with it. But that was. That kind of happened in the process of writing. Yeah. I didn't have any idea of that when I was writing Scrublands. It was just by the time of the, I ended Scrublands, I thought, oh, no, there's more, there's more to it. It just can't be, you know, an isolated traumatic event in the Middle East. It's got to be something much deeper and much more personal. Yeah. And I think your journalist's brain was operating there, though. And the, I mean, the way that you construct the social organisation of the town and, and the settlement beyond it in Port Silver. You want to mm. talk about the settlement and where Uncle Vern lives and a couple of the things he's up to? That, that setting, getting the setting, I, I, it's one of the kind of joys of playing mm. around. So if anyone has, has read the books, they've all got, got these really wonderful maps in the front. Yeah. Um, drawn by a guy uh, in Melbourne, Alex Potochnik, who does this great job. But it started in Scrublands with me just drawing a map for my reference because it's not a real town. And I was do, working away part-time, so it, 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 I wrote it over years, right? So I had to make sure that by the time I got to chapter 23, the town hadn't rearranged itself, <laughs> that if Martin walked this way or, or that way. That's right. And, and so by the, um, by the end of the book, I've got this map, and I thought I would include it in the manuscript I sent to an agent, and, and that's how it ended up being in the book. So I, um, I enjoyed it very much. So then there's one in silver. And I just recently had three big sort of prints made of the maps, coloured prints, and I looked at them. And you can see through the three books how much more complex the maps get. I mean, the, the, the trust is set in Sydney, um, so it's, a, it's more realistic, although with imagined locations. Um, but it's a different perspective on Sydney. It's not the harbour, it's not the Opera House, it's not, the, it's no, not Bondi yeah. Beach. It's this one little rather tight area around Sydney, around like Surrey Hills and Ultimo and whatever. Um, but that imagining of space and location, um, and I'm just, I'm, I'm working on a fourth book at the moment, and again, it's a it's a um, regional setting, and again, I'm having that fun of you know draw, and of course I can't draw, but you know it's <laughs> it's such fun. And settlement and Vern, you want to tell us a bit about that? So so Vern is um, as I said, Martin's immediate family has uh, has died by the time he gets back to Port Silver, um, but his uh, uncle. Uh, his mother's brother is, is still there, still alive, and has this sprawling family. And Vern is this very Australian, kind of laconic, laid-back, north coast sort of dude sort of guy. 
But he and his family and the chaotic mess of it and the way it just sort of hangs together and the big kids look after the little kids and whatever, it, it's just such a contrast to, um, to Martin's life. So, you know, superficially, Martin's had a, this high-flying career. He's been, you know, he's travelled the world. He's done all these things. You know, he's been to university, just stayed in town, you know, operating a fishing boat. But Vern's life is so much richer and more complex and more, you know, emotionally grounded mm. than Martin's can e can ever be. So it works. It works into the plot of the of the book well, but it's also this nice emotional contrast mm. there, and it helps Martin realise what he's missing out on. Yeah, absolutely. That's beautifully done. And leading on from that, uh, and it connects with Vern's story. Both of you are very alive to the fact that in the settings in the books, particularly in Resurrection Bay for you and in Port Silver for you, Chris, uh, that there's an Indigenous population in the town and you're very aware of the treatment of these people and their interaction with the white community. Uh, and both of you weave their stories in quite carefully and um, convincingly difficult thing to do and I, I read an interview with you Emma that you said you wanted to have that Koori theme there and you would have felt cowardly not to have done it. Do you want to explain a little bit about that? Mm. So whenever you're writing from outside your own perspective I think you need to be very careful because you can hurt people and you can also take airspace away from people who have been um, not given the same uh, allowances to, to have their voices heard. So you need to be very aware of that. Um, so I, I had that with both the Indigenous story and, and the death story, so I'm very much in the forefront. Um, yeah. But I, I have um, I have Koori family, whom I, I'm very, very close with, um, who have been a huge part of my life. And I, I write the world around me. So even though I was sort of doing that, uh, should I, should I not, it, it, it just, it, it always comes down, down to a gut feeling for me. It, does it feel right or does it feel wrong? Um, and it felt wrong not to. <laughs> and, and I'm actually so glad because the further on I've, I've gone with it, and, and, I, and I get family members to read my manuscripts as well, the further on I've, I've gone, um, it's the, the Indigenous and deaf side of things uh, they just balance each other so well because we're talking about histories where um, both communities have been denied their language, have been um, denied um, human, basic human rights, ha have been called lesser than human. So the, the two sides of things work really, really well. Yeah. And because Caleb's wife is Indigenous, we've got that other great side where she is incredibly connected to her family and her, her sprawling family, and we've got Caleb who is not. So they work uh, around each other really well in mm. the end. Yeah, yeah, it's fabulous. It's a brilliant theme. I'm, I can't wait for the next book. Um, and where are you going to go with that? Um, how about you, Chris? It, it, look, it's a diff difficult issue because you don't want to appropriate people's stories, as, as Emma was saying, but on the other hand, you don't want to ignore them and sort of whitewash the, the, the world, as it were. So in Scrublands, there was an Indigenous storyline there, but it, it's, I mean, it's a big book already and it was just getting totally sp sprawling. So there's not really an Indigenous storyline there, but that's, 
for that part of the world, it's it's um, that much of Western New South Wales, because of what happened with Indigenous people, some towns have a have a very large and strong Indigenous community, and others don't, because people were moved into missionary settlements. Yeah. Okay, so some towns. There's a very light Indigenous presence, other, others more, but it was conscious. I was conscious in the mind. In fact, I was interviewed by Stan Grant, who's an old mate from the press gallery back in the day. And I thought, oh, you know, he's going to give me some stick about this. Um, but he was, he was really nice. He said, mate, this is the town I grew up, well, up in. How did you know? Yeah. In, so I was a little bit conscious about this. So in Silver, there's an Indigenous character, Josie, who's um, Vern's wife. Um, and I didn't want, though, just to have a, a kind of token character for the sake of it, but it, it fits in well with the storyline. So the town Port Silver has been a kind of a struggle town, but it's now being touted as this next big thing, um, the next Noosa or the next Byron Bay. That's why it's set up there on the north coast of New South Wales. Um, and it, a lot of it's about real estate manoeuvring. Mm. And she and her community is putting in a native title claim on some of this contested land. So it's, it actually fits the story and fits the plot and fits the feel of the town mm. well. So that was, you know, I was kind of glad that that could, could work mm. without being, you know, being Dragging. artificial or, mm. yeah. Mm. Yeah. So I read those six novels, you know, one after the other. Hey, we only found out we were coming like, well about done. a week ago. Yeah. I mean, that's amazing. <laughs> Listen, that was no hardship. I mean, as a, you know, I spent half my life reading crime fiction. But reading them all together like that and, you know, as crime novels, it brings into focus a lot of the conventions that you work within of the genre, uh, which are both restricting to a point but but, but create situations as well, uh, liberating in another way. Well, one of the conventions is that you have to expose your protagonist to regular bouts of not just danger, but extreme physical harm. Um, how do you both manage to hurt the ones you love? Very like easily, that? very easily. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Caleb. <laughs> Look, you know, I, I've had my, I've had, I've got two girls, um, and I, I sometimes get them to act things out because I'm not very good with the physical stuff. Like, you know, the, the world, I, I'm, I'm not taking my notes. Body ends, so it's like, okay, now, now, just, you know, now put her arm behind her back. <laughs> now, can you still kick? You know, so, so it's, yeah, no, I get, I'm, yeah, I'm terrible. I, I yeah. <laughs> I don't have any problem with the violence. <laughs> it has to be there for a reason, though. Like, I, I don't chuck it in. For, for no reason, and there has to be consequences afterwards. Like, you don't just get up and you're fine, so. No, there, there is quite a bit of gore, and I did wonder, you know, as a, you're a classically trained clarinetist, a well-brought-up girl, I imagine. I mean, oh, no, I, no, I was not. No, I'm a total bogan. Um, <laughs> who do, yes, who do, who do you have to hang around to get Yeah, no, to no, be, I, hmm. I, I did grow up in a bit of a, a rough place. Um, but... Also, like, I'm, I'm a deeply angry person. Like, I, I don't have a problem with imagining hurting people. Well, <laughs> Chris, OK, same for you. This came as a bit of a surprise to me. It's a great, great question. Because there's, 
more violence in trust, this third book, mm-hmm. and Martin is forced to confront more violence than in the fir- probably in the first two books combined. Yeah. And I'm, I'm kind of not sure why. It wasn't deliberate. Mm. That's simply where the story went. Yeah. This fourth book I, I'm writing, is, there's not nearly the same degree of, yeah. of, of violence there. Has a different, it's not a Martin B- a Mandy book, actually, but the protagonist just get king hit at one stage, but, you know, it happens in the space of about two sentences. Um, it's not the kind of dramatic confrontations that you get in trust. And why? I don't know. It's just kind of how it came out. Feels right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, crime novels struggle between good and evil. Do you both either both believe in redemption. I mean, I was listening to Grace Tame yesterday, um, talking to the National Press Club and responding to questions about the allegations of sexual abuse in Parliament and how they're being handled. And she said, look, there's a dark side to human nature and we have to acknowledge that in order to inform our response to that. Is the battle ever won? Do you believe in redemption? I think there's a strong element of redemption in these books, but not for all characters. Um, uh, I think for Martin and certainly for Mandy in in Trust, um, I think morality is an important part of many crime books, issues of morality even almost by default, because if someone has murdered someone, there has to, it's an extreme act, OK? So what has driven them into that state? And almost inevitably, it can't be... You can't say to the reader, oh, yeah, they were just having a bit of an off day, so they killed someone, right? So, so it won't work. So you do end up exploring issues of um, morality and whatever. In my three books, there's a very... Uh, strong theme, but it's a recurring theme of the idea of karma, that that you can't outrun your past. I think um, Mandalay keeps asking yeah. Martin, do you believe in karma? Yeah, and it's, in fact, the first time they meet in Scrublands, she asks him that, and then, and then fortu- fortuitously for me, it allowed me to revisit that sort of thing every now and then. And for, for Martin, his, his past is carried with him from his traumatic childhood. And it's the same with Mandy, that she has, she thinks she has buried this episode of her life and put it behind her. And then we find out in trust she hasn't. So no, that's a, it's a strong kind of theme, I think, through the book. She just can't outrun your past. Mm. Um, my books are almost anti-karma, I think. Um, it's all about the character's choices. And, and things happen because of their choices, and, and, and predominantly Caleb's choices, but also the, the characters around him, like Frankie, his, his business partner. Um, and sometimes good things happen because of them, and sometimes bad. So I, I think in terms of redemption, in, in terms of human beings, absolutely there can be a redemption, but it has to be heartfelt. It can't be, oops. Um, it, it really needs to be... Um, wow, I have really examined what I'm doing and what I have done. Um, and that doesn't necessarily come with forgiveness either. Uh, and, and, and they're both things that I actually am really interested in, in playing around with as well, is um, 
where, why would you do uh, a bad thing? According to you, would be a bad thing, and, and, and actually, um, that's one of my favourite things is to push a character to that point where they would do something that they wouldn't normally do, and why, and have it feel legitimate, and then put yourself in that position. And how would you do it differently? Mm. Yeah, I, I think one of the things that I enjoy doing with characters is you don't want a bunch of goodies and a bunch of baddies. No. You want them all complex. It's all so, we, mm. so even the, the people who do bad things may have done it so with mixed, at least mixed intentions. Some of the people are trying to do good things, including Martin, you know, but when it comes to getting the story, he's willing to sort of bend the rules of, you know, ethics or whatever to yeah. some, to some mm -hmm. extent. It, it makes it more interesting for me to write. But I think almost naturally then it's going to make it more interesting for readers to read. Yeah, everyone's a hero in their own story, and that's yeah. including the, the baddies, yeah. yeah. I told you an hour wouldn't be long enough. I've got more questions, but I should give you an opportunity to ask questions of Emma and Chris, if you have any. Uh, there's the microphone. Please avail yourselves of it and go for it. Um, very interesting to hear what you say about your books and your writing. Um, last year we heard Michael Robotham talk about his process and uh, um, I'd never read any of his books and in the last year I'd become rather addicted to following his stories and his characters one after the other. Um, Emma, one of your books I encountered some years ago where a friend of mine brought it to my attention and um, I have been attempting myself to uh, write something that's going to be worthy of publication and crime fiction is one of the realms that I've explored. But with so many of the stories that I've started, I get to a point where I, I feel like I don't know how to end this and I don't know how to come up with an ending that's going to be satisfactory for not only me but also the reader. Um, so my question to you is, have you got to this point um, where you're not confident about how the book's going to end because you're, perhaps you're writing with this process like, like Robotham, the, this flying by your pants, as it were, rather than plotting it out? How do you get past that point where you can come up with a satisfactory ending? Yeah, every day I write is, is like that, basically. Um, I don't know what's going to happen. Usually I have isolated scenes that I know are going to happen and I've got to work out how to get there. Um, th th there's two things that I, I always come back to. And one is, um, what does this character want and why can't they have it? Because thwarted desire is, is at the core of all good fiction. If the character can have what they want, you don't need to turn the page. So it comes back to, to who they are and what they want. And the other thing, sometimes it can really help to say, what is the worst possible thing that could happen to this character at this moment? Mm. And that can really swing you. Yeah. Um, yeah, I encounter this problem all the time. Um, like Michael, I'm more of the pantser than the, the plotter. So I start and I don't know where the story's going to go. but. What I found is, is it, you know, hopefully I'm getting better at this process. Um, we trust that the, some of the crime themes, I, I just didn't know where they were going entirely. 
but I did have an idea of what the emotional story was going to be. So you have some idea of at least part of the ending without knowing how you're going to get there. So that's one sort of tip. The other one is what is a sort of a reiteration of what Emma just said, and it's Raymond Chandler's great solution to exactly that problem. If you don't know what happens next, have a man walk into the room with a gun. Thank you both very much for an interesting talk. Um, I'm wondering, now that you've both got three books out and developing these characters, are you getting feedback from, say, the Auslan community and also the journalists um, community? People are saying, you should do this, or yeah, if, if it had been me, I would have done that. And is that useful? Is that helping to develop and build your character and stories? Yeah, I, I get a lot of um, emails and just people talking to me. Um, it, it's actually all been positive so far. I mean, I think whenever you put anything out into the world, you assume you'll get negative feedback at some stage. But also, I, I mean, I speak to a lot of people and, and I have a, a deaf sensitivity reader who I talk about things. So it, it's an ongoing conversation. It's not like I've put something into the world and it's sort of been in a, in a vacuum. Um, many of my friends are journalists, okay? So it's not as if I, it's a community I have to visit. It's, it's all around me all the time anyway. Uh, most of them are very generous, really, for journalists, are, are complimentary, and it's more like, how the hell do I get out of my job and get one of my books published? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just curious from both of you, but particularly Chris as a journalist, what your thoughts are on fictionalising true crime? Um, the thing about writing fiction, where you know where the ideas come from, from from crime fiction, and you know with me it's often just out of the air for for some reason. But sometimes it's going to be initiated by something that you've heard or you read or something like that. Maybe something you've experienced. Um, I don't have any problem at all about fictionalising real events if they are truly fictionalised, you know, the names are changed or whatever. The great joy of writing fiction, as opposed to being a journalist, journalism can be very frustrating because you can't, often you can't find out everything that ha happened. You can't tie it off in a neat bow. Uh, you know, if you're doing a true crime kind of podcast or a book, you may come up with a theory, but often, you know, who was Jack the Ripper? You know, you can come, come up with whatever theory you like. One of the great satisfactions of writing fiction is that you can do whatever you like with it. But it goes back, I think, to that issue of... Um, the that crime fiction, for whatever reason, often does have commentary about real-world events, not just, not just criminal events or murders, but, you know, the political milieu, what's happening in society, poverty, indigenous issues, you know, whatever. So um, I think fictionalisation of things is fine. Mm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think... Um 
as long as it's clear what's fiction and what's not. And, and yeah. I think um, it, it's true crime is probably the, the more uh, delicate um, area to be delving into because if you're saying this is what happened, that, that's when you yeah, really have to be very careful. Yeah. Okay, well, thanks, people. And it's probably, sadly, time to wind up. Before I do, I've been asked uh, if I would take this opportunity towards the end of Writers' Week to thank the very many volunteers who've mm. been wandering around and making things happen for months before, so I'm very happy to do that. Thank you. And uh, I would like to thank very warmly and like you to thank Emma Viskich and Chris Hammer to I recommend their books to you heartily if you haven't met them. And I also suggest you go and meet them outside the writer's <laughs> tent, uh, the, the book tent rather, where they'll be signing their books. So thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> well done.